This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Tom and Brandy with you again this morning, 7th of December, Thursday. Almost the end of the week and we have passed the midway point of COP, which is why today is rest day. They're not all sitting by the pool. Uh, negotiations still going on, a bit of a stock take as to where we're up to, but it's not a themed day at COP today. It was, however, yesterday, the Building Environment, Urbanisation and Transport Day. So we've been looking at that in detail, getting the economist's view of what was discussed from Daniel Richards of Emirates NBD, looking at a big building agreement fostered by the UN, uh, that was signed by 27 countries, but not the UAE, and finding out why from Saeed Alaba, CEO of AESG. We've also been looking at the launch of a pilot carbon credit trading scheme. The DFM's put it together. They've got 17-odd companies trading, a number of verified projects um, providing the carbon credits to be traded. How it all works has been explained this morning by one of the brains behind it, Eric Salomons of the Dubai Financial Market. Finally, we have been looking at the Russian President Vladimir Putin's fleeting visit into the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Our energy expert this morning was Sean Evers of Gulf Intelligence to tell us what it could mean for oil markets. Where we are discussing uh, what's happening at COP, even though we are not at COP because it is technically a rest day. Yesterday, however, uh, was a big day for the construction industry. It was built environment, urbanisation and transport day at COP. We will be looking a little bit later in the show at the big agreement that came out on the construction side, nearly 30 countries, but curiously, not this one, signing an agreement to move to near zero buildings by 2030. We will also be looking in this show this morning at discussions between uh, the Russian President Putin um, and leaders here in the UAE and Saudi, what it means for trade ties, what it means for oil. Uh, and we are taking folk remedies for Tom Urquhart, who is a little foggy of the throat and nose this morning. Just a little bit under the winter weather. That's all. It's fine. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Can I go get him a lemon honey and ginger from downstairs? I'll be fine. That's what New Zealanders would do for you. I'll be fine. If anyone has any advances on that, something a little bit stronger we could give them this morning, do messages in 4001. Bullet in the head. 0481 We've also got Serena Kelly in the studio with all the latest news. Let's kick off having a look at what came out of COP in the last 24 hours. Building and Transport Day. This is Dan Richards, Senior Economist of Emirates MBD. It was Building and Transport Day at COP28 yesterday with a focus on bringing down emissions from the construction and logistics sectors in particular. So there are lots of discussions around this and a statement issued that sets out a 10-point plan looking to boost the inclusion of cities in the decision-making process on climate change. Now, given the high levels of urbanisation in the world today, which only continues, and the fact that 90% of cities around the world are threatened in one way or another by climate change, this makes perfect sense, especially given that cities contribute around 70% of global emissions, and there are means to bring this down quite significantly and some easy gains to be had, arguably, whether that is through greener construction methods or better utilising transport. Now, these are two, of course, two important sectors for UAE economy. 
for UAE as a whole, construction accounts for around 6% of total real GDP, and that's actually around the same for Dubai. And given the projected population and economic growth of the UAE and Dubai over the next couple of decades to 2040, this will entail ongoing construction, whether that is in residential units, roads or more general infrastructure, such as uh, schools and hospitals, all of which will be vital, but which could all the same come with a hefty carbon footprint. So the work at COP28 will help the cities of the UAE and the rest of the world mitigate the effect of this growth on the environment going forward through utilising better methods. Now, we know that some of the biggest growth in Dubai's GDP this year has come from the transport sector. This is Dan talking about the economic effects of those decisions at COP. The transport and storage sector is around 12% of Dubai's GDP and smaller for the UAE at large at 4.8%. Now, a lot of that is down to the national airlines, and we know that that has been the key driver of Dubai's GDP growth in particular in recent quarterly prints, but it also entails the transport of goods, and that is a focus of the work on reducing last-mile emissions in particular. And I think arguably this has become increasingly important in recent years as there has been this rise in online shopping and deliveries. How exactly that compares to going to the shops yourself in terms of emissions, I think it's probably quite hard to say. But the issue of returning something you have bought online sight unseen and now don't want anymore is probably something that happens far more now than it did in the past. So I think it's vitally important that this last mile of delivery is decarbonised in order to help countries and companies reach their net zero targets Especially as the last mile often generates more emissions than the 5,000 miles prior to that and reportedly accounts for around 70% of the total. It's also, of course, the most costly, so there's potentially an economic win to be gained through looking at methods of delivery and aiming to improve them. Now, a focus on electric vehicles should certainly be a focus point, moving away from petrol motorbikes and vans, which should be something that can be realised given the short ranges needed to be travelled. And within a densely populated city location, drones or shared autonomous delivery robots will also likely come into increasing use. Centralised delivery hubs will also help. But it also has to be a focus on packaging as well, reducing the use of plastics or even any unnecessary paper and cardboard boxes. There you go. Waiting for Dan to get a call from noon, asking him to come in and uh, work with their last mile delivery service when he's talking there about um, putting up more execution centres. That's pretty much the noon model, isn't it? The fact they managed to get you stuff in about four and a half minutes. Yeah, exactly that. Mysteriously. Um, a highly competitive sector out there at the moment. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the numbers keep getting smaller, don't they? We'll get it to you before you've even thought about ordering it. It'll be the next one. Eventually, they'll all just be living in your maid's room and popping out with whatever you've ordered. Exactly. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Right, let's have a look at what came out of COP28 yesterday. It was Urbanisation and Built Environment Day. And one of the things that happened was the passing of a building breakthrough format put together by the UNEP. To put it in context for us, very pleased to have in the studio Saeed Alibar, who's the CEO of AESG. Saeed, good morning. It's nice to see you. Morning. Pleasure to be here. And you guys are involved, well, as well as consultancy, engineering, helping companies to decarbonise. Let's have a look at this agreement. 27 countries have signed up to it. What have they agreed to do? 
Well, um, Randy, the, the breakthrough is actually something that came out of COP26, and it was about how do you accelerate decarbonisation of high-emitting industries. And actually, buildings wasn't one of those sectors that was that was included in those initial breakthroughs. So I think the the sector has kind of been trying to mobilise momentum to to get the buildings breakthrough into COP. Um, so this was sort of pulled together, and 27 countries have signed up to it under the the, the UNEP framework. Um, and essentially, those those under the building's breakthrough, it's to accelerate the move towards net zero buildings and, and, and keeping it in a relatively short-term cycle. Because if we start talking about 2050s and 2060s, it just seems too far in the distance. So the, the goal is really that by 2030, you know, near zero, net zero, and resilient buildings become um, the norm um, and largely driven by sort of state actors. Um, I you know, I have strong belief that really the, the big movers in, in any sector is finance and policy. Um, and I think it's you know, pleasing to see that this is definitely something that's going to be policy-led um, about engaging with the, these ministerial entities across the 27 countries to accelerate um, regulations for, towards near-zero buildings. Do we need regulations? Does there need to be a stick rather than a carrot for the industry to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if you take sort of the theory of change for, for a lot of sectors, you, you do have the market leaders, which are sort of the 2%, 3% of the market that are sort of showing what's possible driving best practice, innovating. And, and those are very important because they need to show the way. And also they embolden government to provide regulations. You know, government's always very, very nervous about providing a policy because, you know, they might think that the sector will collapse if they put a new regulation in and, and the like. So you do need those those early movers. But to, to mobilize the remaining 97% or, or 98% of the sector, they're really going to follow what's what's required. And the construction sector is definitely one of those. As a sector, we're very, very good at doing what we're told. Um, not very good at doing much beyond that. So it's very, very important, I think, for the sector to, to have these policies in place. UAE, not one of the 27 countries that signed up, though? No, but the, a lot of the UAE's initiatives are, are within the UAE's 2050 plan. So they're part of the, the, the targets of tripling renewable energy and doubling energy efficiency. Um, so a lot of the work that's happening uh, within the UAE's around that. Um, also, sort of the building sector or building codes in the UAE is generally not, not managed at a federal level. It's done at, a, at an emirate level. Um, so there's a lot of work that's going on at those emirate levels, which probably falls aside from the sort of the UNEP work that's going on. I'm interested in what you said a moment ago there about how the sector is very good at sort of, you know, doing what it's told to do, but not necessarily taking the initiative to go beyond that. Why do you reckon that is? Um, I think there's a number of factors, but I think essentially over the last 20, 30 years, as you know, globally, there's been a bit of a race to the bottom within the sector of, of you know, prices being driven down, procurement, you know, asking for, for, for a lot more for, for less money and, that sort of race to the bottom has kind of provided, produced a basically a situation where construction firms are going to try and do the bare minimum, cut corners where they can to just to be able to survive, right? Um, and when they're operating in a sector where it's it's double digit risk, you know, construction is a risky activity, um, but operating on very small single digit margins, then the area for innovation and R and D and going above and beyond just just isn't there. And I think if you look at construction compared to say manufacturing. Um, Manufacturing over the last 20 years, if you look at all the digital tools that have come out since 1995, you know, they've experienced about 3 or 4% productivity improvement year on year. Construction is only about 1%. So we're definitely lagging as a sector. And I think that is one of the reasons has been just that that real, real tight um, cutthroat market conditions. So what needs to change to change that? What needs to change, for example, in our tendering process? I think it's, it's looking at more longer term partnerships. I think if if 
clients are looking at a process where they're just getting the lowest cost for one single project, all you're going to do is then get a different team on every project. And your, your unit of production um, essentially is one. You assemble a team, they learn how to work together, they deliver the project, and then they disband, and then the next cheapest person comes in for the next one. So I think it is looking at more longer-term partnerships, uh, more collaborative environments. At the moment, you know, in, in the sector, we see contracts which are very, very onerous and very, very one-sided, um, which then creates that, that, that tension right at the start of a project where um, the parties just don't, simply don't trust each other. Um, so I think it is more of a collaborative partnership approach, and that has to be led through through the, the, the major, major clients as well as, as government entities to, to help regulate that sector. Because that's a real mindset shift you're talking about, about, you know, everyone needs to get a discount at, at every stage. Yeah, and I think if you if you look at probably some of the more enlightened developers um, in this market and, and globally, they have taken that longer term view. And, and I think that you can see that they've benefited from it because over time they're able to achieve those productivity and efficiency improvements. Um, because essentially, as a team, if 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 a developer's contractor can can develop something more efficiently, more productively, because they're in that right environment, essentially the client benefits from it. So I think it is that mindset shift, um, but it takes time, and I think it needs both regulation as well as as well as awareness. So, what kind of regulation? What would you want to see? Um, it's a t- tricky question, but I think around sort of the contracting mechanisms, I think is very important. Um, fairness and equity in in, in contracts uh, between the contracting parties to have some level of regulation around that uh, protection um, down the supply chain, particularly when you get lower down in the supply chain of the subcontracting entities, there's very little protections in place there. Um, so I think those are, those are some of the areas. And, and also if you, if in our sector, the, the largest um, buyer in the sector is the government. You know, if you, if you look globally, you know, it's roads, infrastructure, bridges, you know, the, the biggest spender in the sector is the government. So really it's, it's government leading by example, um, by actually without necessarily regulations, it's by, by implementing these norms. But one of the things that you do as a company is you do help your clients to decarbonise. Are they doing that because they have to? How many are doing it out of choice? Um, it's a different number of factors. I think, uh, as I said, the, the three biggest drivers is, is always you know, policy, finance and insurance. And I think finance is one of the real, real big drivers at the moment. Um, you know, I think you just look at COP, you've got Larry Fink, Noel Quinn, Ray Dalio, Bill Gates in town. You know, that, that signals something that, look, climate finance is being mobilized in a very, very big way. Um, there was a number of the announcements on sort of day one at COP, you know, the Altera Fund, which is going to mobilize $250 billion, you know, based out of here in Abu Dhabi with, you know, BlackRock, Brookfield Asset Management behind it. So I think that one of the biggest drivers we're seeing in, in the real estate development sector is access to finance, is that it's becoming... Um, increasingly the shift from sort of the larger institutional um, financiers is around sort of finance that is climate aligned. What about the other one that you mentioned there, insurance? I mean, resilient buildings is one of the things Mm. that comes under this building breakthrough. Are we going to see more pressure from insurance companies who don't want to make the big payout if if buildings can't stand up to climate change? I think we're definitely going to see that around the, and we're already seeing that in in sort of some some coastal areas in in the United States where insurance premiums are either, you know, through the roof or they're just unwilling to to insure. Um, We saw it as a a big market mover. a lot of the work that we do in, in, in the UK market is around sort of the post-Grenfell remediation of, of buildings and, and making them fire safe. And the biggest driver for that was insurers, is that insurers were not going to insure properties that didn't have sort of compliance mm-hmm. on the on their cladding requirements and the like. So that is going to be something that, that drives things. I don't think they'll be the driver on the climate mitigation part because ultimately they don't insurers aren't going to pay for emissions, they're going to pay for the, the, the damage. And I think we're seeing a lot of that at the moment that the resilience piece on infrastructure and buildings is going to be important, particularly on infrastructure. 
Unfortunately, we have to leave it there this morning. Saeed Alaba is the CEO of AESG. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. In the Business Breakfast, let's look at a very high-level visit to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Yesterday, the Russian President Vladimir Putin meeting with leaders in both countries. We're interested this morning in what it means for trade ties. Uh, Tom's going to be speaking to the Russian Business Council a little bit later in the show. And also what it means for oil. Very pleased to have in the studio Sean Evers, who was founder and managing partner of Gulf Intelligence. Sean, it's lovely to see you again. Let's have a look um, at that visit yesterday, fleeting visit. Um, What do Russia and the UAE and Russia and Saudi Arabia have to discuss when it comes to oil? Oh, I would say a lot. Um, Listen, the timing of this is important to sequence. uh, and, And I suppose... Yes, you would say the sudden announcement of it, you're not going to flag too much in advance the Russian president's travel schedule. But nonetheless, the sequencing of the timing, a very long, drawn-out OPEC meeting that arrived at a finish line last Thursday that was quite underwhelming and full of question marks, followed by an interview on Bloomberg Television on Monday by the Saudi oil minister who pointed through his language, to a lot of uncertainty around Russia's commitment to the uh, OPEC plus agreement. One has to remember Saudi Arabia is carrying a very big, heavy bucket on behalf of everybody else. One million barrels a day of voluntary cuts by Saudi Arabia since June, which in dollar terms amounts to $15 billion in lost revenue they've given up to support the overarching uh, revenue of all oil producers. Russia's commitment and participation to the similar cuts have been questionable, and the Saudi energy minister outlined that on Monday, that there's been implement- they've put in place a very extensive review process now of Russian uh, production and exports in order to verify that they are complying. And then on Tuesday, we get the announcement that Putin is making this lightning visit to to Saudi and UAE. I don't think all of those are disconnected. I do think this is an absolutely critical relationship to Russia, i.e. OPEC+, uh, uh, and Saudi and others probably a little bit displeased by Russia's flagging commitment to their output cuts and supporting the overarching project. That's my reading of the tea leaves. Okay, well, what will each of these players in this triptych want? Well, ultimately, they'll want Brent crude oil to average above $80 in 2024. Uh, this morning, we come to the, our, our work with Brent dropping below $75 a barrel for the first time since June, since this uh, Saudi uh, voluntary cut of 1 million barrels a day was implemented and had its uh, its desired effect. It propped up Brent oil prices uh, well above 80 right through most of the second half of the year. Year, uh, but then in the last weeks has come off and, and uh, we're seeing Brent trading in a fairly strong downward draft. Uh, 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 something uh, hopefully comes in to stop that downward motion. Confidence in OPEC plus, I think, is critical. Yes, demand is important. The macroeconomic outlook for China, the US and Europe, very important. Obviously, with macroeconomic growth comes oil demand. But I do think the supply side, the OPEC plus credibility, which was sort of rock solid right through COVID and uh, 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 since 
three and a half years ago, one has to remember where this sort of latest round of cooperation started. It started in a lot of non-cooperation in March Mm -hmm. 2020. Saudi Arabia and Russia famously fell out. They couldn't find agreement. Oil prices collapsed. And then it sort of brought sober minds to the table and a massive agreement was put together to contain the, the fallout from COVID. Uh, now it seems there's a little wobble, in, and, and I think the wobble has been obviously shored up uh, with President Putin's visit to Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. Okay. So why do you think, we've only got a minute and a half left with you, that the market has shrugged a lot of this off, these latest cuts coming not just from the three countries that we're used to seeing the cuts from, but beyond that, um, and yet, as you say, dropping to a five-month low in the, in the US below $75 a barrel here. Why isn't the market worried about these cuts? Perhaps there's two reasons. One, the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. Uh, I'll believe them when they when I hit me in the face, when I see them when they're tangible, i.e. in the first quarter is when they're meant to come into place, right? So as the first quarter unfolds, and which is, uh, so that's belief in the pudding of the delivery of the cuts. The second is we are going into the weakest demand quarter of the year. So prices uh, uh, would tend to soften anyway. Uh, Uh, The other, of course, is that there are other suppliers in the world other than OPEC Plus, and most notably the United States has now, over the last three months, uh, had uh, through 2023, grown its production capacity by over nearly close to a million barrels. It is now uh, at record levels, over 13 million barrels, and is the world's largest oil supplier. So there is supply coming to market. uh, As OPEC cuts, other suppliers are adding who have no obligation to comply with OPEC plus cuts, the US being sort of exhibit A, and of course, um, uh, Guyana and other uh, uh, also increased a lot this year. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there this morning. Sean Evers, founder and managing partner of Gulf Intelligence. Thank you for your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Moving away from the black stuff, the oil price, literally moving away from fossil fuels. Uh, Dubai financial market during COP has launched a pilot carbon credit trading program. It's gone live um, with just over a dozen participants um, on the trading side. To put it in context for us and to explain exactly what those companies are doing, Eric Salomons is the Executive Vice President and Head of Product Development at the DFM. Eric, it's lovely to have you in the studio. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So talk to us about what you have set up here, this carbon credit trading scheme that you're trying out for size. Yeah, so um, at the DFM, we've been, um, over the last 20 years, we've been operating uh, the securities market. Um, I think that, that sets us up for a, a, a great uh, new venture, which, um, which presents itself in the uh, carbon credit trading. Now, um, to avoid rushing into uh, new ventures um, and to start understanding what the demand would like for these carbon credits, uh, we, um, we gathered 15 of the larger Dubai corporates um, on the demand side, so people that are actually buying these carbon credits. Uh, we found uh, credits that are generated by the likes of Diwa, for example. Um, we, want to, um, we want to have uh, price assessment providers um, that provide a global perspective on these carbon credits to be part of that as well. Our brokers are participating in that, uh, typically the brokers that cater to institutional flow. 
Um, and we've gathered them around for a pilot that started on, on Tuesday morning. Okay, so let's break this down further. When people are trading carbon credits, what are they actually trading? So um, the the idea of carbon credits originates almost um, a couple of decades ago, but most recently, uh, 160 countries agreed in Paris in 2015, came into effect in 2016, that countries should start looking at reducing the uh, the, 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 the targets of um, climate uh, climate change to 1.5% over pre-industrial level. So that's um, that's where we um, that's the aim for introducing um, measures or tools, if you like, for countries to start um, thinking about how are we going to go about that. So obviously um, that can be done by taxation, but equally it can be done by cap and trades or setting a cap that then reduces over time um, and have companies and that and corporations that are faster and more efficient um, in doing that and achieving that earlier um, to give them credit for that, which then become the uh, credits uh, traded to those that are laggards or slower. Okay, so those that are creating the carbon credits here, that are effectively removing carbon from the atmosphere and that then gets traded as the credit. You mentioned DIWA there. There are a couple of other projects as well. Tell me what those projects are. What have you chosen there? So we've we've created a as this is a pilot and it's 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 our um, it's our inroad into into trading these instruments. Uh, we traded seven different uh, different projects. Diva is 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 one provider with two with two projects. One is a technology change in uh, one of their chiller plants, and the other one is uh, our our credits that uh, arrive from uh, the solar plant that is built out in the desert here. The other credits are nature-based, um, and we also have a, a, a so-called photovoltaic, which is a solar power plant in India. So a, a limited number, but what's interesting is that they have a different variety of price. So our buyers, uh, the demand side, uh, can actually pick and choose what, what's, um, what, what price they would like to pay for a ton of carbon offset. Okay, and there's been criticism of, of carbon credit trading schemes before that um, the projects uh, might be overstated in terms of how effective they are taking carbon out of the atmosphere or they might be projects that would have happened anyway. So does it count towards actually helping the, the world heal itself? How are you verifying and choosing these projects? So in our verification, um, we've, uh, we've worked with uh, and, and relied on um, uh, verification bodies that um, have a good reputation. So the DIWA credits, for example, are uh, registered with the United Nations Clean Development Mechanism. Um, the VERA is another um, registration and or verification body, if you like, uh, with, a, uh, with a with a very good reputation. Now, I, I've, I'm very much aware of the criticism of, of some of the efficiencies uh, that exist within, for example, nature-based solutions and the efficiencies. And as you say, uh, those might have happened anyway. Um, I think where the world is is moving to, and we can see that, for example, at price levels um, in Europe, that uh, technology-based solutions or geology-based solutions are permanent removal of credits, maybe the future. And that will occur at a different price level. So, for example, credits in Europe typically trade between 75, 80, 40, 45 to 80 um, uh, dollars a, a ton of carbon credit, where the credits of nature base are much, much lower. So I think that's where the world will gravitate to. 
Um, that's one point. The other point that I'd like to make is that these these methodologies evolve. So um, when people were um, looking for credits, maybe five, six, even under earlier agreements, um, signing Kyoto way back, um, people were looking for ways to offset carbon. And the technologies that were applied there and the knowledge that was, that was uh, available then has evolved into different things. So the criticism... Um, is there. We're very much aware of that. And um, what we want to do is, is evolve with the industry to uh, help set these standards of what is, is actually um, included and admitted to our markets. Okay, just we've just got one minute left with you. What about the other side of that, those companies that will be buying the credits? Because one of the other criticisms is that it doesn't actually change behavior if you can just buy someone else's good behavior. In the one year of the offsetting period in this scheme, what do you want the companies that are actually trading the credits to do? So first and foremost, we want them to start thinking about what their demand in the future would look like. So um, without going into too much detail, every every corporation in Dubai possibly should start thinking about what is their um, carbon footprint and how would they like to offset that still in a voluntary uh, on a voluntary basis in the future. If that's the case, um, and if they've mapped that and understand that, then I think if, um, they are they are ready to start procuring these credits as well. Um, so for them to start understanding, mapping, and building that that understanding uh, is is a is a is a is a critical element to this pilot as well. And we've have we've been having these discussions with um, uh, with participants in the pilot. What oh. will it look like in the future? Twenty seconds. If the pilot works, how big could this get? So the estimates vary, as as is usual by um, by by emerging and nascent markets. Um, estimates. Uh, this is McKinsey number in 2030. This could be up to 50 billion. Um, others say it's slightly less. Others have multiples of that. But it, it, in either way, the climate action that that and the positive sense that I get out of COB is that the climate action is is now and voluntary markets are going to be a part of that. Um, and um, and we want to evolve with that. Okay, well, let's see how it all goes to buy financial market starting trading on its pilot carbon credit trading program. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Eric Solomon is Executive Vice President and Head of Product Development at the DFM. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.